If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Peggy Shippen, wife of the notorious trader Benedict Arnold. She'll be answering our call in 1802 at the age of 42 while living in England. Initially, upon arriving to England, the Benedicts were treated kindly by King George and Queen Charlotte. But as time passed, the English remembered the one key element of dealing with traders. If you can be a trader once, you can do it again. This dark cloud followed their family for the rest of their life. Now that Benedict has died the previous year in 1801, Peggy must carry this weight alone. History says that Peggy was complicit in the events, leading to the Benedict Arnold betrayal. Many historians suggest that she was the mastermind that drove her husband to switch sides. But Peggy denies this. And although it's difficult to imagine all of this happening without her knowledge, her explanation is compelling. By the time this conversation ends, you're going to question what you know. Was she the catalyst that turned the fierce General Benedict Arnold to switch sides against his will? Or was she a young girl in the middle of a power struggle, being pulled a dozen different directions by powerful men? Soon you'll know. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and fashionistas everywhere, I give you Peggy Shippen. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Arnold? It is. To whom am I speaking? Oh, ma'am, I am so excited to speak with you today. My name is Tony Dean. I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting in the same room with one another. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And ma'am, considering how poorly you and Mr. Arnold have been treated by history, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions to clear a few things up. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? I don't believe I have any questions. I must say this is an odd way to communicate, and I must also confess that I feel a bit alarmed that hearing my words will be spread, did you say, throughout the world? Absolutely. In this time, and it would have been so nice if this was available in your time for a lot of reasons, but in our time, it's very easy to record something like this and make it available to everybody, which can be really good because, if, for example, if you want to provide some information for people to, to learn from, they, in a school, for example, one teacher could teach somebody across the globe. In your case, though, I'm not 100% sure that your legacy and your history has been represented properly. And that's kind of why I was looking forward to this call, because it seems like since the, the treason trials and the incident happened with, with John Andre and everything that happened, it seemed like your life had changed quite a bit once that happened compared to the way you grew up. That would be an understatement. Tell me a little bit about your life when you were younger, because you didn't have all these problems before you got married, did you? I did not. I suppose my father would say he had problems, the main one being the bill at the Mantua Makers for my sisters and my gowns. He had far deeper problems. I suppose we might get into those at some point, but I myself was living a pretty lovely life until 1778, 1779, I would say. What was your childhood like? Or do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I was born in 1760. My family lived on 4th Street in Philadelphia. I'm not sure if you are familiar with it. It's near Prune Street. And 3rd and 4th Street were considered Society Hill, and that is where I grew up. I am the youngest child, and many in Philadelphia now that my reputation has sullied, I suppose you would say, claim that the only reason I was the favored child of Edward Shippen, my father, was because I was the youngest. Sadly, there were two born after me, but they passed away, and that made me youngest by default. But... We were always close, and I was very much my father's daughter. I enjoyed his pursuits, and I wanted to learn from him, and I was always found at his feet and reading with him and learning the ways of his work and his knowledge. I have three sisters and a brother, 
typically <laughs> a father will teach things such as mathematics and business and the ways of his business. My father studied law and he was a clerk for the court system in Philadelphia and various things. He had a few different jobs through our time, but he soon realized that my brother was a waste of time pretty much. And he focused his energy on these things, teaching me instead. It sounds like your dad was a very interesting guy. Why would you say your brother was a waste of time? What happened to your brother? He was very frivolous. He did not put his mind to educational pursuits. He was not accountable or responsible. He often got my father into a bit of trouble just in a time where everything you do can be misconstrued by somebody, whether, and in the time I'm speaking of is later. So at that time, the war had begun and the tensions and everything. The loyalists were looking for reasons to find that you were disloyal and not a Tory and the Whigs or the Patriots, the Continentals, they were looking for a reason to say that you were a loyalist and to expunge you from their territory. So everything he did was scrutinized. And my brother was careless and not mindful at all. This had to be maddening for your father because my understanding is that your father was a judge and he was an important member of society and he has this one daughter who is spending too much on dresses. All three of us were. All three <laughs> daughters, not just right. me. <laughs> it wasn't just you. And let's see, met Betsy, my eldest sister. She spent more than me, I would say. Well, it's nice of you to spread the guilt out, but accept mm -hmm. enough of it on your own. But I it take be... enough blame for other things. <laughs> okay. It seems like your dad, though, it had to drive him in nearly insane that your brother was not taking on the family tradition. It, and your bro that brother is older than you, right? Yes, because I'm the youngest. My brother, he did not live up to the Shippen family expectations at all. My father's side of the family was Quaker. Now, my father did not continue in the Quaker tradition, but that is a very uh, austere and contemplative upbringing and that carries on you're, you are to carry that into your entire livelihood and my father though he left the faith and joined the church of england we were members at christ church in philadelphia with many of the other notable people there though he left that faith and did not raise us in it he still held tightly to most of those tenets the ones that were deepest to him and he found them important and he did try to pass those on to us and sadly those things did not take in edward jr well he's not there's so many edwards he's not he was edward jr to us but <laughs> he was about fourth of mine oh he even had your dad's name and so, my grandfather and great-grandfather oh <laughs> My gosh, that had to be... He did not, yes. I think he wanted to revoke that name from him at some point. <laughs> name him something totally Possibly different. Possibly ship in as well, <laughs> yes. So when you say he broke away from the Quaker traditions and went to the Church of England, what did that mean? What are the consequences of that? Well, with they're mostly in Philadelphia, they're more called the Society of Friends. I've learned that many people outside of areas that have such congregations typically call them Quakers. I think it's a bit derogatory from what I understand. So, but I understand more people know Quakers, so I will use that term. When you break away from the Quakers, oftentimes there's a shunning process. His family did not hold it against him that he left the faith, though they were somewhat holding away at that time as well, I suppose. There's a lot of persecution for that sect, and so it's a difficult road to tread, if you wish to stay in it. Some segments of society persecute them. I see. Okay. You were saying that your dad, when you were young, that he spent you spent a lot of time with him reading, and he taught you, did you say mathematics and law? I mean, were you significantly more educated? Somewhat than law. Oh, yeah, yeah. Easily, yes. <laughs> Younger yeah, and more educated. Younger and more educated. So what else did he teach you? I mean, was this normal to be teaching women at this time, those sort of things? No. A girl's education, typically around 11 or 12, their formal education of academics would cease, and their education would shift more toward lovely pursuits, I suppose, things that men find lovely in a woman, more of music, whether you're playing an instrument or singing, reciting poetry, anything, oh, dancing, of course, anything that will entertain a man is what you typically get shifted towards as well, of course, as household duties and being able to run a house properly. Those are what men have decided that we should learn at 11 or 12. While the boys go on, often they'll go 
onto school. Many of them would have left the colonies and gone to England. My father did not bother sending Edward to England for he knew it was not going to be a worthy pursuit. However, most boys will, especially of our society status, they would be sent away to England to study whatever course, usually the family business. When you had said that a woman after 12, she has to learn anything that would entertain a man. I've never heard that phrase said quite that way. And it sounds like there was some tone in your voice like that, that you have some strong feelings about that. Oh, did you sense a tone? Well, I, I perhaps didn't have that tone when I was younger. However, through my journey, shall we say, I have learned that men, well, men's opinions of women determine who she is, truly. For a man seeks for women to educate herself and, as I said, things that delight him, whether it be keeping of the house or dancing and dressing beautifully, being able to play an instrument that tickles his ear, things of that nature. And then later in life, once she's grown, they'll say that women are frivolous and stupid, foolish things, for that is what our education is in. Yet that's what they determined we should be educated in. They did not allow us to have the further education and the more practical studies. And yet, even though they like to call us frivolous and silly and unable to lead because we don't have the proper education because they disallowed it, yet if there's a time when a man who is of some kind of importance to society runs afoul of society, somehow that silly woman suddenly became a mastermind and uh, is brilliant and can fool everybody, despite the fact any other time they would call her silly and foolish. I think I know who you're talking about right now. Yep. I'm talking about all of men, except for my father and men like him, actually. (laughs) Your your father's a good man, though, isn't he? He is. He did not view women as such. And there are men who see women as their equals. I hear, I actually know from speaking with them, that Washington, his excellency, treats his wife, Lady Washington, Martha, as an equal partner. And there are other men that live their lives that way. However, they're not enough of them who are so enlightened. And yet still even men like them, they may not quite see the use in educating a woman fully either, even if they do see her as an equal in some ways. Boy, what irony behind the fact that the men determine what they want women to learn that would lead them to be more frivolous as they got older and then they critique them for it as they get older. That is the definition of irony, I think. They pull our strings of fate and then they criticize us for them. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned Washington, General Washington. My understanding is that later in your life that you had some difficult run-ins with him and John Andre. But when you were younger, you spent time with Washington, I think. Did he spend time in your house with the judge? He did. And... Indeed, I never had a difficult, did you call it a run-in? Is that the term you used? Uh, That's as good as any other term. I did not have any sort of, I did not have any negative experiences with Washington myself, actually. Negative as far as uh, our interpersonal relationship would go. Obviously, that situation involving my husband and John Andre was negative. However, my treatment by Washington in that time was wonderful, and I have never thought poorly of him. There's nobody that admires General Washington more than I. I've said that before, and I will continue to say it. Before he was General Washington, did he spend time with your family? Indeed, he did. I said I was born in 1760. Not much happened then, but uh, it was becoming quite turbulent in our colonies at the time. By the time I was 14 in 1774, the Continental Congress was convening upon Philadelphia, and so many dignitaries that I, I, I assume... Uh, with the ease of which that you're using my name and the name of Major John Andre and General Washington, names that still resonate, hopefully, in uh, this nation and the world abroad. Those men were convening upon Philadelphia, and so I had the opportunity to spend time with them. As my father was a prominent member of Philadelphian society, they would come to our home for dinner and for discussions. Washington was among them. At the time, he was not General Washington. He was not His Excellency. He was merely the retired Colonel Washington from the King's Army. Wow. So who else of these prominent figures that you're talking about 
spend time in your home? Well, Benjamin Franklin, when he was in town, where he's always often about, he would spend time at our home frequently because I had two grandfathers who were good friends with him. My father's father and then my mother's father as well. Both were close with him. So we spent much time with Mr. Franklin if he was in Philadelphia, which tended to not be often at times. What kind of person was Dr. Franklin? Oh, eccentric, I would say, indeed. And he was not careful of speech at times. He could come off with quite the ribald joke. You never knew what he may say. I, I do remember times of my mother clamping hands over my ears and removing me from the room he was in. <laughs> He's a good man, though. He, he makes his own rules for society. Oh, it's interesting because Dr. Franklin, it just he seems like he's one of those guys that could just say anything. And because who he is, everybody mm. would just forgive him. Indeed. <laughs> we so, may say something after he's left, but not, not to his face. So what about General Washington? What was he like? Well, it may surprise you that he, well, he too enjoyed a ribald joke. He was not as oh, prolific with them as Franklin. But and I do recall times we would be sitting. He, he's soft of speech. I'm not quite sure why I've heard that he has a lung condition that might make him speak softer. But you have to pay attention. Even back then, when he was just the retired colonel, he was, I suppose, a farmer at the time, <laughs> that he was brought to Philadelphia. Even then, though, though he'd be soft of speech, he had such a presence about him that he commanded your attention of being in the room, and he did not speak much. So he spoke little and spoke softly. So when he did speak, everybody at the table would lean in to listen. And it was quite amusing. At times, we always expected him to say something very deep and important. But there were times where he would speak and we would all sit aghast and shocked at what he'd said. And it's not because he said anything terrible. It's just that he had said a joke that he had heard at a tavern. Nobody was expecting it. And we all sat in silence, which... I suppose it would make one feel self-conscious if you just told a joke and nobody is laughing. But then somebody would guffaw and another one would just fall in uproarious laughter and the whole table would end up laughing then. And the joke may not be that hilarious, but the fact that it came from him it added so much to it. <laughs> so I think that is something that people, because he is, I hear people say he's very, what are the words they use for him? Just very not cold, but not very warm or approachable. And I think that is an affect he's taken on as a military figure. But when he is with people he is comfortable with, friends as we are, I suppose he, he probably does not consider me among his friends now, but still my father. He is quite warm and jovial and entertaining even. Not often, because he, he is quiet, but when he wants to be. Gosh, it's just, it's an amazing thought to think one day, Colonel Washington is sitting at your table and you're telling jokes and laughing. And then, of course, you go through the situation that w happened with your husband and him. And then he becomes president. And I mean, it's just to look back, you were sitting there breaking bread at some point. Did you even mm -hmm. think that maybe Often. he could rise? Did you think that he could maybe even rise to that level when you knew him? I don't know that I contemplated a leader other than a king where we were living under the king at the time, and we were children of England, though we'd be so far away. At the time, even at the beginning of the troubles in the war, the goal was not, even for Washington and the rest of the Continental Army, was not to fracture us. It was not for independence at that time. It was reconciliation, but a reconciliation on their terms. And since the crown was not bowing to the terms that they had asked for, that they went to battle reluctantly, but they were still seeking a resolution, not a separation at first. So I don't think that I had even thought of him as a leader other than at the time when he was just the colonel there, I didn't think about it. He definitely had the air of leadership about him and you could almost see something like an unseen force almost pushing him further. You knew that he was going to do something at the time I was 14 and, and not fully aware of the politics and everything happening, I did not think of him as a general or a president, but it, it does not surprise me now. You just said something interesting because you'd said that, uh, that you were under a king and you necessarily, that everybody wasn't necessarily trying to break away and start their own country. But it kind of made me wonder if during that time when Washington started, General Washington started to take a leadership role, if people wondered if we did in the colonies get independence, if he might be the king, would they? Would you oh, look indeed. at him that? Is that the case? Oh, yes. Congress 
the Continental Congress, those men that elected him to be the commander in chief of the army that they elected to have became both afraid of the army they created early on, immediately, and also him. <laughs> you had men such as Adams, who was a big proponent for Washington to be the commander, suddenly not have warm feelings toward the military. Suddenly he was afraid of it. He did not want a standing military, which was a big ordeal for Washington to overcome. For as soon as he would train men, at their time, the, their short enlistment would be up there and they would be gone and would have a whole group coming in because it was temporary. It was not mandatory. There were no mandatory terms because Congress did not want that because they were afraid of the army that they created. And even though we were fighting a war and we needed an army, but they were afraid that should we win, what might the army do? It may take these men out of power and they didn't want to lose that. And they even became wary of Washington. They would call him, some called him a tyrant already. Some said that should he be a victorious general, that he would be a, a tyrant, which is entirely neglecting everything that they knew about him as a person prior to this. They had such fear, and honestly, I do not have a high opinion of the men of Congress, so I feel that it was their own machinations that they were putting onto him, and it was their own desire and pursuit of power that they were afraid that he would usurp. It was not anything indicative of him. It merely reflected their own shortcomings and the darkness in them, I would say. I suppose that people would feel like when they looked at the way that the monarchy was treating them in England, that you just don't want to get rid of one king to get another one. I mean, I could see that where you'd be afraid like that. Well, Washington was popular with the public, and his men loved him. He, he's not charismatic, but he has a persona that draws people to him, and he is likable, and he is implicitly trustworthy. He is a good man. You can tell that when you spend time with him. And so he was easily liked, easily respected, and the men of Congress did not like that about him, which is an odd perception. Yeah, that is strange. Seems like you want somebody like that in there. I want to ask you a couple difficult questions right now. But before I ask these questions, I want you to know something that, again, I'm calling you from hundreds of years into the future. The only thing that you can do by telling the truth right now is just clear up your legacy for the people that maybe would label you as a spy or a traitor or, or a villain in history. So when I ask you these questions, none of these are meant to be rude or to attack you. It's just I'd like for it to be clear so people can know who you really are. You had mentioned earlier you were talking about loyalists and uh, patriots. And Where did your family fall? Where did you fall? It is indeed a hard question, not because of the truth angle, but it is difficult in the complexity of it, I would say. We were neither. When looked back upon from the future, people tend to see things as black and white, one side versus the other. And that was never a case in our society regarding the war. There were, especially in Philadelphia, people, I, we would talk and we would mostly say there are three factions. There are the loyalists who, of course, want to remain loyal to the king and stay a part of England. There were the patriots, the Whigs, the rebels, whatever you'd like to call them. And they were the people supporting whatever the Continental Congress was doing, whatever Washington was doing. And then there was a third of a population who did not have a take on either side. Perhaps they leaned one way or another, but not strong enough to fully identify as that. And mostly they just wanted whatever would be best for them and their family. So we truly fell into that last category. My father, though we are labeled as loyalists, and we were labeled as loyalists from the start, we were not. We never did take a side. As I've mentioned, the men I've mentioned at our home are the leaders yeah. of the Continental Congress, of the army. We also had other people in our home as well. When the British occupied us, we had the British officers in our home. When the Continental Army came back through and was occupying Philadelphia once more, we had their men in our home. And I married one of them. I married the most successful general they had. That is not a loyalist way of thinking, and we truly did not have a side. My father went out of his way to not have an appearance of a preference either way. Partially, that is because, maybe largely, because of business dealings for 
he did not want it to affect his business. It did affect his business, not taking a side, truly affected him to almost impoverish him at one point. But also because of his upbringing as a member of the Society of Friends or Quaker, as I said, they do not get involved in politics. They, don't, they do not get involved in war. And so I think that was deeply rooted in him not to become so involved with either side. But truly, we weren't on either side, though from the start, they claimed we were loyalists. So you weren't on one side or the other. It is interesting that you had British soldiers in your home. And then, like you said, you had patriots in your home and then you married one. Before you met Mr. Arnold, you met John Andre before that, correct? Well, actually, I met Benedict Arnold around the same time I met Washington at the age of 14. Incidentally, John Andre was also in Philadelphia at the same time. I did not meet him at 14, though, but all three of them were together in Philadelphia at the same time. What was his rank, by the way? Is it Major Andre? Major, yes. He became an adjutant general for Clinton. Oh, he did become a general. Okay. Well, adjutant. When you when you spent time with Andre, what was your relationship with him? Because history seems to think that you had a very strong, secret, romantic relationship that involved some spying. What was your relationship hmm. with him? If you ask difficult questions at times, don't you? <laughs> Forgive me. I would say also in my time, I there were not concurrently not when he was in philadelphia there were not rumors about us but afterwards there were rumors that there was a relationship of a romantic nature there was not i don't know what society is like i don't even recall what year he said it was but i know you've said it's hundreds of years in the future and i'm trying not to think on that right now it makes no sense to me nor this this device but i don't know how people interact in your time but in our time at least in Philadelphia, and I know in Virginia as well, for I spoke to Virginians, I know they are very flirtatious <laughs> as well. And so, yes, there were flirtations. There were balls. The nice thing with that about the British occupying Philadelphia is they brought back levity and fun and merriment, which the Continental Congress had banned from Philadelphia. The British loved to have a good time, so they brought balls back. So there was a ball almost every night of the week at times. There was definitely one every Thursday at Smith's Tavern where we would all go. But even more than just that one specific time a week, there were several. And then if there was not a ball, there was a gathering at General Howe's, the home he was occupying, or Andre's, or even my father would have people over. There was much time to spend time together, and we entertained ourselves by being flirtatious in nature. It did not mean anything. If anything, if he was connected with anybody romantically in Philadelphia, it was Meg Chu, my good friend. They had more of a romantic relationship. They were more of the ones that you would see together paired up more often. Of course, we all switched dancing partners and things like that, but they tended to be together more often than not. So you absolutely did not have any sort of serious behind-the-scenes relationship with Mr. Andre? Serious? No. Just flirtatious? No, not at all. Yeah, very fond of him. He's a wonderful man. You rarely meet a person as skilled in so many different areas as he. And so learned a polyglot. He also had several different professions. He's so skilled in so many different things. And then just the artistic nature about him. And it is no secret that he is one of the most handsome men that you'll ever see as well. I and every other girl in Philadelphia fancied him, but we were nothing more than close friends. So when you say he was a very interesting man and you described some of the interests, I mean, what was he like? Was he charismatic or was he, yes. I mean, was he flirting with the women all the time? Oh, yes. All of them. <laughs> all, of them? all of the good society ladies, not all of them, but all of the good society ladies. He was very flirtatious, but he was respectful. He was not a cad. He was not anybody that you had to worry about. My father had him in our home often. He would not if he was a man of, of poor quality of character. He was a man of good character. He did enjoy the flirt. He enjoyed to dance. He enjoyed attention. And just as we all do at times, but he was a good man of, of good character, very charismatic. He was a writer of music, of poetry, of plays, everything. <laughs> he was an artist. He was a musician, a director, an actor. I don't think there's anything the man could have done and had he only lived longer, I I, some, I can't ponder it. it. It breaks my heart too much to think of what he might have accomplished. Even the Continental officers wept 
at the loss of him. Really? They don't do that for an enemy soldier. Yeah, yeah. Do, so do you recall where you were when you found out that he was being hung? I was in Robinsonell. I had no other place to go. I was somewhat a prisoner at the time. How so? Well, Robinson House is at the property of West Point. It's where we stayed briefly. I did not arrive very long before everything happened. That was the home we were to live in. Arnold had gone ahead of me, and he had taken command of West Point. And I arrived, I think, around... I left Philadelphia September 6, 1780. And a week or so later, I arrived, I'd say, at Robinson House, maybe a little bit longer. We had the baby with us. Our baby also was named Edward, just to add another one. But <laughs> I had not more Edwards in your life. More Edwards. Yes, we can't have enough. We had to make up for the last one that did not do so well. We were at Robinson House, and that was our home. And that was where Washington came that fateful day with Lafayette and Hamilton and his other officers. I, I suppose you'd probably like to ask this more in depth, but that's where I was when they found out about the treason plot. And so... By that very nature, I was not allowed to leave until they said so. Oh, I see. That's why you were a prisoner there, because they found out about the plot, and they said, you're going to stay mm -hmm. until we get this resolved. Yes. Let me talk about West Point for a minute. When it comes to West Point, and obviously mm -hmm. we're getting into the very serious events that it seems like completely changed the direction of what your family's life would be. General Arnold was in fact, conspiring with the British, and he was changing sides. Is that correct? That is a very basic understanding of the situation. Clarify that, if you would. Uh, no, he did not seek to leave the Continental Army. He lived to fight for them. I don't know how our story has been parsed out all these years later. Who knows? But I would like people to understand that this was a man born in Connecticut. He did go to London, but only for school. He had to become an apothecary for his father had swindled away all of the family's money. He fell into alcoholism and died swiftly, and his mother had passed as well. So he was on his own. He was studying under a druggist in Connecticut who paid his way to London to get materials to purchase his own shop then. That's the only time that he was in England. We, he was not English. He lived in Connecticut his entire life. He was a continental man. He was a son of liberty. Do you know of the Sons of Liberty in your time? Yes, definitely. Do you know what they were about and what their nature was? Well, yeah, they definitely were not about supporting the king. And so he was one of the Sons of Liberty. Yeah, indeed. He was a son of liberty, very involved in their actions, if you can call it that. These are polite to say what they did. He was very involved in that. So before the war even began, he was for a war that didn't exist. He was on the side of the Continentals. The reason I met him when I was 14 at the same time that I met General Washington is because he was there in Philadelphia for the Continental Congress. That is well, not a loyalist. No, I wouldn't say that he was a loyalist at all. But he yet, was forced into it. Well, and so, in your opinion, what forced him to actually? Oh, factually, he was forced into it. He wanted to fight for Washington. He and Washington were great friends. They were close friends. He admired him, not as much as I. Nobody admires him as much as I. A close second, perhaps. They were good friends. And he felt that his place was on the battlefield, and that is where he belonged, and that is all he had to give. And he gave everything he could. He fought, and he was treated poorly from the start. He had generals and officers taking victories from him from the very start with Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys and all of that debacle, the way they treated him, and then his injuries of being shot in the same leg twice. And while he was recovering, they were passing him over for promotions to men who were juniors to him as far as rank or length of time at that rank. He had to fight for everything that he got, and he got barely anything, which Congress barely gave anything to anybody, so he was not alone in that. They had no time to answer his questions regarding his rank being restored to him in the way he deserved it, nor the refunding him the money that he paid out of his own pocket, much like Washington, to keep his troops fed and clothed because the men of Congress were surely not going to give any money. They had no time to answer him on those questions, but they did have time to question him about his expenses 
and everything else. He then had men conspiring against him constantly. If it was not one of the other generals or officers trying to take his glory, it was when he came to Philadelphia and that little miserable mite Joseph Reed was there, hounding him at every corner. He was pushed into this. He had no support. I could go on about Joseph Reed and everything he did to us for three hours. He is the mastermind of this plot because he pushed Arnold into defecting. Okay, so tell me who Joseph Reed is. Wow. You sensed the slight tone earlier about men. I don't know what you sense now. <laughs> Joseph Reed, if you want to say anybody betrayed Washington, it was Joseph Reed. He betrayed him long before Arnold ever did. He was conspiring with anybody that would conspire against Washington from the start. And Washington loved the man. He was an aide-de-camp to Washington. He's from Philadelphia. He was with Washington in Cambridge, which is Washington's first headquarters. And he wrote letters to other generals and to Congress undermining Washington from the nearly the very beginning. He was in with Gates and all of the, and Conway and anybody else that wanted to try and usurp Washington. Then he left the military. He'd only ever really been an aide and he couldn't hack that. And he came back to Philadelphia to live and he received a position with the city of Philadelphia. And then he rode that horse as if it had some kind of power to no end. When Arnold came, to Philadelphia, Arnold came after he'd been shot in that same leg a second time. He had recovered, much to everybody's surprise. The doctors tried to force him into an amputation, and he nearly shot them for that. He was not going to lose his leg. He was going to recover, and he did. He came to Philadelphia to recuperate, and Washington had given him the position as military governor of Philadelphia just after the British had left and the Continental Forces were coming back in. From the start, Joseph Reed followed him and hounded him and tried to find any kind of misdeed on his part and began twisting every action Benedict did. He was accusing him of all sorts of crimes, different military crimes. One time, Benedict asked his aide to fetch him a barber. He needed a haircut, and there were strict grooming standards. He had just come. He did not know who could do such a task, and so he asked an aide who had been here to go fetch him one. Joseph Reed filed legal charges on that account for a, a general should not be having a military man fetch a civilian to work for him. He said he was enslaving the civilian population, something absurd. And there were so many things that he went after him about. He hounded us to the point where he moved in next to us, which I would never believe was not purposeful to just harass us. We had just, we'd only been married a couple months, and that was not a good wedding present to have that man move in next to us, a man who's been <laughs> harassing you all over the city. They even, at one point, they, they were commandeering a house that my aunt lived in. They carried her out on a chair. This, this man is not, he does not behave normally. And he had a, a bee in his bonnet about Benedict, and decided to, that was his way to make a name for himself, for he lacked the talent and the military skill that Arnold had to make a name for himself on the battlefield. So instead, he wanted to strip the hero of the Continental Army of any of his glory, for he was jealous and angry that he did not share in it. He sounds like an awful man. His wife uh, as well. I hear you calling your husband Benedict, and then sometimes you call him Arnold. Do you call your husband Arnold? Uh, yes, and at times uh, General. Whatever I'm in the mood for. Oh, all right. So anyhow, you said his wife was awful too? She was just not kind. She was from England, straight from England. And yet Reed was not considered a loyalist. It's odd that he was trying to usurp the commander of the Continental Forces and he had a, a British wife. That seems pissy to me, but nobody raised a brow at him. Even Washington found his letters to be smirching Washington. And Washington still didn't do much about him yet. General Washington seems like he makes great decisions. Very often. How does he okay. miss something, somebody like Joseph Reed, and treat him so well, and then treat Mr. Arnold so poorly? Indeed, I don't know. I cannot answer that. And I can only imagine that he is in a difficult position. It seems he's always in a difficult position before he had to be president after. And he just wanted to be at home, from what I understood. And he was thrust into a great position. He had to create an army out of farmers and merchants and vagabonds. He did not have an army. The men he were, was given were not soldiers. So he had much on his plate to begin with. And I suppose in that position, I, from what I understand, he took a liking to Joseph Reed immediately. As I said, he was with Washington in Cambridge. I believe Joseph Reed rode from Philadelphia 
to Cambridge with Lady Washington. He escorted her, so he trusted him immediately. And he read his letters to Gates saying that they should replace Washington. And he did nothing about it. He didn't speak to him for a while, but he was fine with him after, for he was conversing with him about Benedict often, from what I understood. And he did try to help Benedict. His hands were tied by Congress. And Reed was leveraging Congress against Washington. From what I understand, he was threatening that the city would not cooperate with Congress on any military actions until they stripped Arnold of his titles. It was very personal for whatever reason. I don't understand what what caused it, but it seems very personal to me to just pursue somebody so stringently. I wonder if this was some of the reasoning behind this might have been some of the same reasoning behind why your husband received such poor treatment. Your husband was an extraordinary general. Everybody in this time Indeed. knows that. In fact, I think that if he had not switched sides, whether it was right or wrong, I think that his face would be on our money now because your husband... Your face was, is on your money. Yeah, we do have faces on our money. Is it a continental dollar for in our time? There's a saying, it's not worth a continental because the Congress botched that so terribly that the continental dollar went down in, <laughs> in flames, truly. It's uh, yeah. this whole debacle, if <laughs> the money was falling then. Was it becoming worthless? Yes. At that same time when uh, Arnold was feeling put out by the military, also everybody was losing their money. It was a very stressful time. Well, the thing I was saying about that is I wonder if Reed was jealous of General Washington in the same way that Definitely. some of the other generals were jealous of your mm -hmm. husband, and that caused Indeed. them to try to undermine them in both cases. Indeed. I def that, that's what I said. I believe that he was jealous of the successes that Arnold had on the battlefield. He was a man who had ambition but did not have the skill to achieve those goals that he had or to achieve anything close to what Arnold had achieved. So your husband died a couple, just a couple of years ago, didn't he? Did, or was mm -hmm. it last year? He did. What were, what were the last years of his life like? I know he had a lot of trouble with his leg. That was never remedied. He always had pain from that. The leg, they wanted to amputate it for good reasons. They were not unskilled or uneducated in medicine. He refused, and I understand why he did, but he suffered pain his entire life. Indeed, it was a few inches shorter than the other leg. So he also had a hobble and had to use a cane often. It was weak. He, he was out of service for a long time. In fact, ironically, he started to seek West Point, for he thought it would be fortuitous for him. And Washington was going to give him West Point, and then suddenly decided to give him a field command again. So his leg had only just then gotten stronger, and that was, I would say, almost two years since he'd been injured before he could fully put weight on it. And then it plagued him the rest of his life, and the older he got, the more it hurt, which I understand happens with many injuries or wounds. They seem to come back to haunt you later in life. But his never did stop hurting. Never went away. Was your Not husband entirely. the kind of man that belonged on the battlefield? Oh, I believe he was born for it. Yeah, Did he enjoy he, it? He believed he was born for it. Yes, yes, he lived for it. He loved it. And he loved serving under General Washington. He did have hurt with Washington after he did not defend him in all these conspiracies made by Joseph Reed and these false charges. That did drive a wedge between them. But it was never personal with him, and it was never against the cause either. My, my husband, as I said, he was a son of liberty. <laughs> you cannot become more for the cause than a son of liberty. They are what pushed everybody towards that point. And he, it, it was not for a lack of care of that. It was because the country had no care for him. He had given everything for this burgeoning nation. And they just kept taking and they kept taking and they kept taking and gave him no assistance. People like to blame me for what his actions as some sort of mastermind of the plot is what I've heard. But he came to me a broken man. He was broken in body. He was broken in mind. And he was broken in spirit. And that only continued once he came to Philadelphia. Before he even came to me, he was writing to Washington and others about the war. He would say, your war, your cause. He used to say, 
prior to that, he would say our war, our cause. Before he came to me, he had already changed his speech to exclude himself. It was no longer his cause. It was no longer his war. They had left him behind, and he was already withdrawing from it when I met him. As I was still a young girl, but four years older than I had first met him. I did not do this to him. That's what I was going to ask you, because there are a lot of people in our time that believe that you were the one that pushed him over the edge. And I think you're saying that is far from the truth. He was already there. If he was not over the edge yet, he was on the edge, the precipice, and Joseph Reed rushed him and knocked him all the way down again and again, because he did even after he began to communicate with the British. There were times when he would stop and he would do everything in his power to be a good continental general again and try to get in the good graces of Washington and Congress again. And when that would fail yet again, once more, he would take up communication with Andre. He struggled with it, even as he was in the plot, so to speak, the plot. (laughs) Strange was my life, even in the midst of it. He struggled with it and would go back to Washington and the Continental Army. That is what he wanted. His heart was there. They just kept rejecting him and not giving him anything that he was due and owed and what was his rightfully. Unfortunately, in our time, and I know you won't like hearing this, when people say the name Benedict Arnold, it's, it's not just a name. It describes somebody that has switched sides. It describes a traitor. It's a thing now. It's not just a person or a name. And... I guess there are a lot of people that probably felt that they did not get what they deserved, and yet they didn't switch sides. For example, Paul Revere didn't quite get exactly what he wanted either, but instead of switching sides, I don't know if he could have anyhow, he went a different direction, and that is he just went into business and just let the water roll off his back. But Benedict Arnold, he did. Didn't he take a huge sum of money from England? From the king? He did. Okay with that? At that point, I was. He tried. I'm not sure what Paul Revere sacrificed for the war, but my husband was out on the battlefields leading men. He was being shot numerous times and wounded and ill. He was giving all of his money, his hard-earned money. You have to understand this is a man who came from a family that had been put in society and then his father destroyed everything about them, their reputation, their finances, their their family business. And he had to build himself up from nothing. And much like Washington and much like Hamilton, he was a man who did not have a good name to stand upon. And so making that name for himself was very important. And every time he earned glory, somebody came behind him to take it and nobody stood up for him. They would just allow that to happen time and time again. He was abused by both the military forces, the officers over him, Congress, and little meaningless men like Joseph Reed, who for some reason were given some measure of power that they did not deserve. He gave up himself continually. He rode out into battle ferociously and without fear and led men to follow him. And yet his glory was constantly taken from him. If you have any self-respect at some point, you give up on that cause. The cause left him. He did not leave the cause and he told Washington as much. He poured his heart out to Washington and told him of his struggles. He sought help. He wanted a, a hand to hold on to, to help him assist him out of this. He had done nothing. In fact, I should maybe add, or perhaps you don't know, these charges that beleaguered him through our time in Philadelphia by Joseph Reed, they went to a military court-martial. First, they went to a continental committee, the Congress committee, William Packer led it. He found nothing wrong in any of anything that Arnold had done. All the accusations he found to be false. The Continental Congress pressured and afraid of Joseph Reed for some reason because the city was so divided and he threatened to just make that divide deeper if they didn't do what he said and they believed he could because he's crazed. So then the Continental Congress threw out the findings of their own committee 
and then tossed it back to Washington in a court-martial. Court-martial found that he had done nothing. There was a slight reprimand for, I believe it was, his Arnold's personal ship, the Nancy, had gotten stuck out in Jersey and had all of his goods on it. He used some wagons that were the military's wagons to bring some goods in. That is it. He intended to pay them. He hadn't yet because he had not been paid back because Congress owed him money, so he had no money to pay them back. He fully intended to. Washington and the court-martial found that he did not mean to rob from the government nor the army nor misappropriate their goods and wagons and such, but still it was not the best decision is all they said. And so there was a slight reprimand in that nature. That is the only thing that they found against him after all of this harassment. So he was innocent of those charges and he desperately was begging. And even after that was found, Joseph Reed did not leave him alone. He still pursued him and he begged Washington to help him. And he even told Washington, if they do it to me, a lesser general, and they get away with it, which is what they're doing now, what is to stop them? He was worried about Washington. He was worried about the cause in general. He thought everything was lost. This is not a man who was, I am usually, but about what? (laughs) You were going to say, not a man. This is not a man who would leave a cause so flippantly or just over personal gain. I know that's what everybody says, that he was doing it just because he wanted money and he was greedy. That's not it at all. However, if he is going to leave the nation he's been fighting for since before anybody else was, because he was a son of liberty, if he's going to leave this army that he has given up his body, his mind, his spirit, and his money and time, if he's going to betray a good friend such as Washington, he will want pecuniary reimbursement for that. Yes, he will want money, something to make it worth his while. If he had left the Continental Army to go serve the king for nothing, then yes, he, it was because he just didn't care about the cause. He had to be bought. He had to be bought at a very steep price. And he had to be bought after much betrayal. Who was the first person to make contact with the other side. Was that first contact with Mr. Andre? Well, what do you think? Was she a young girl caught in the middle of an epic battle between powerful men and their desires to take what they thought was theirs? Or was she the mastermind teenager? Remember, she was just a teenager, but somehow she convinced Benedict Arnold that he should leave everything he knows and loves and switch sides, betraying the country that he helped create and betraying his hero and mentor, George Washington? She makes a good argument for her side. And when you consider that Joseph Reed was relentlessly attacking Arnold while Congress refused to reimburse him for money spent on the war, the average person might not need that much of a push to make these kinds of drastic changes if all of that was happening to them. In the next episode, we have much to discuss about her relationship with John Andre, the man she loved, but that was hung for his role in the conspiracy. And we'll find out if Peggy was acting when she threw a fit while being questioned by George Washington about her participation. I'm glad you're enjoying these conversations. Don't forget to subscribe now. And thanks for listening to the Calling History Podcast. 